0: Hello Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host Jesse Weiler, and of course we have another great episode for you. This week we are talking about liturgical seasons. But before we dive in just yet, I have a quick favor to ask of you. If you are listening on the iTunes platform, could you please write a review for us on the website? It will go a long way to help other people find our podcast by looking at other reviews. So without further ado, episode 9 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. Enjoy.
2: Liturgy guys, liturgy
1: guys, here to talk about liturgical
2: year. Liturgy guys. We should do that every week.
1: You want to have an audience, don't you?
0: (laughs) Are you saying that we're bad at what we do?
2: At some parts.
1: I'm a highly accomplished musician, Kristen. As Meatloaf says, two out of three ain't bad, because I'm not.
0: Oh man, we need more Meatloaf quotes in this podcast.
1: And Homer Simpson
2: quotes too. Bad out of hell.
0: I don't think we've had one Homer Simpson quote. I am so smart. S-M-R-T. SMRT.
1: <laughs>
0: so, liturgical season
1: slash yes. year. Yes. Believe it or not, I have already had this question put to me You know, a year in advance. So apparently, uh, March 17th, uh, St. Patrick's Day, falls on a Friday during Lent next year. Oh, I yes. think I know where this yeah, is Yeah, finish going. the question.
0: Uh, can we have corned beef on that day? That is exactly it. Are you serious? Beer? Yeah. Beer. You've, already, you've
1: already had that? Yes, already had that.
0: Has somebody asked you, if I've given up beer for lunch? can I have beer? That's the next question, right? Is that? Well, who would do that?
1: <laughs> Why? But these liturgical calendar questions uh, are in some ways the most uh, difficult. To, they're very interesting. They're more interesting than you might think at first, uh, to my mind. I'm kind of a liturgy nerd. But it, liturgical time, and the liturgical year, is one of the more difficult uh, sacramental signs to grab hold of. Because we, um, we've been treating everything, whether it's uh, architecture or images or words or music or people or whatever it is, uh, kind of under this uh, umbrella as a, as a sacramental liturgical sign or symbol. But the thing is, I mean, you can see the priest, uh, you can smell incense, you can see an image, you can hear music, you can feel the holy water, but you can't really sense time in the same way that you can these other things. So it's just on the natural plane. Before we start to use it supernaturally, time is one of these things that's hard to grab a hold of. And uh, St. Augustine famously uh, treats the nature of time in uh, the Confessions, book 9 or 10 or something like that. Uh, and what he says is he's going to take this question seriously, and he's not going to answer it like these smart Alex who, when asked the question, what was God doing before he made time, answered, making hells for people who uh, make (laughs) such questions. He's really going to try to address it because it's a very difficult topic to try to understand, both naturally and liturgically. And God's outside of time, right?
2: One of the things Augustine says is that we measure time by change. So we don't really know how much time has gone by until we see that minute hand on the clock go from 12 to 6. Or the sun moves. Or the sun moves, yeah. or you get your gray hair, or whatever it is. Somehow you know time has passed. If you're
0: measuring time by when you get your gray hair, you're doing it wrong, I think. Well, you'll you'll see when you start getting time. time. gray Time's
2: moving hairs. fast yeah. for you, isn't it, <laughs> it oh gosh, the gray hair is showing it. But God's outside of time because God does not change. Totum simul, I think, is the expression. He is all at once. And... Time is a creature, which is a funny thing. We think creatures are alive and they wander around in the woods, but time is a creature, something God made for human existence so that we would know uh, that there is this sort of beginning point and end point, and we have so much time to be sanctified, glorified, to adore and worship him and become ready to meet him, something that the angels don't need, for instance, because they don't change and they don't have the option to uh, grow holier. They're already in heaven. They're at their own perfection. So time is something very specific to us to help us grow in sanctity.
0: So I'm guessing this is kind of where we get the liturgical calendar because it's a way for us to take something that is not physical, uh, kind of what what God has created for us, and turn it into something in which we can, you know, relate all of the, all of the all of the happenings. You know, we talk about the the passion and all that and all that. Um,
2: how we can make that relatable to us liturgically? Right, because there's the historical event of Christ's life, which you know, in a certain sense happened and are over. But what the, the church teaches is that all of the powers of Christ, all the sanctifying powers of Christ, are given to the church to administer, implement, and make real for people throughout the history of time. So what um, they say is that the, the drama of salvation, this mystery of all the acts of salvation, are now operating in the mystical body of Christ and in the church. And so his personal life, his personal events, which in a certain sense are finished, are now communicated sacramentally in the life of the church. So the, the power of the resurrection to inspire us every uh, moment of the day is not over once you hear about it. The next day, the next year, the next decade, you might have new insights to bring to it and might have new graces to offer you.
1: The uh, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, puts it this way, at least in part uh, Recalling the mysteries of redemption, she opens up, the church opens up to the faithful the riches of the Lord's powers and merits. So that these are in some way made present in every age. The faithful lay hold of them and are filled with saving grace. So time, uh, like these other sacramental signs and symbols and words and actions and the rest, they're not just pointers and reminders. They in some way make that unseen reality present in the here and now so that we can come face to face with them so that we can lay hold of them, as the Constitution says, and cooperate with them. Right, and the
2: claim that you know the entire uh, life, death, resurrection, uh, power of redemption is presented in every single Mass, every single day, but there's so much in there that in our limited intellect, our limited capacity to concentrate, there's too much there for us to do every single facet of Christ's mystery in, you know, 45 minutes on a Sunday. So there, it's kind of extended out over the liturgical year so that the Passion can be celebrated in one particular, you know, Holy Week. The Resurrection can be celebrated in the Easter season. And so the, we have better access to all of the the um, fullness and the richness of the life of Christ and the plan of salvation.
0: And, of course, we have the liturgical, the actual liturgical year. But then we also have the readings, which are on a three-year cycle. Um, you know, and all of this. So there's all types of things happening um, at the same time, and then you know, the, during the calendar year, we have different feast days and, and all of that. So that's all a part of this as well. We can experience almost that whole life of Christ and the disciples and, and beyond in one year.
1: Yeah, that's precisely the idea. But you know, the, the question, and this is what becomes confusing, perhaps to to some, to me, sometimes too, is why are particular feasts and solemnities placed where they are on the liturgical year? And uh, uh, what I've found a good entry to this is, is to recount these um, uh, events given at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Right, so uh, traditionally say, we, uh, when, when the angel Gabriel was sent to a virgin, named Mary, when do we observe this? The Annunciation.
2: Which is how many months before Christmas? Right, nine, a, exactly nine months.
1: Right, so March 25th is the Annunciation. Uh, nine months after that, we observe uh, Christmas on December twenty-fifth. But the the angel says to Mary at the Annunciation, "Behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth is already in her sixth month." So, when is the conception of John the Baptist?
0: Three months before, or six months before? Okay,
1: which puts it when? Oh, my gosh. Three months after the yeah, annunciation. Right. <laughs> September 25th, or actually September 23rd. And this is not a, a feast. You did not tell me we were going to do math in here. <laughs> I told you this is difficult. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> uh, this is not a feast that we observe in the Roman Church, but in, in some of the Eastern churches, the conception of John the Baptist is marked on September 23rd. Okay, so if that's when John is conceived, September when is...
0: September 23rd or the, or 25th?
1: 23rd. 23rd, okay. We'll fudge a little bit here. When is John the Baptist born then? If he's conceived around September 23rd, when is he born? When is the nativity of John the Baptist? Nine months later. Right. Give me the date. July? June June 24th. That's right, Jesse. So here you have... We'll edit that out. All my mistakes. Here you have four dates on the liturgical year. The conception of John the Baptist, uh, the birth of Jesus, the uh, conception of Jesus... And the birth of John the Baptist, but note well. Maybe we should to complete this in a sense. When does when do we consider to G- Jesus to have died? Well, you it's a movable feast, but it's always centered around the uh, lunar calendar. The lunar calendar, the according spring. to
0: and, and and that's related to Christmas.
1: Well, the all the point is all of these are related to the natural cycles of uh, uh, of the year. So. Um, the, uh, the Feast of Easter is uh, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, which is usually March 21st or 22nd, or maybe for our purposes we can say March 25th. But notice these four dates on the liturgical calendar. These are kind of the pillars around which the whole liturgical calendar unfolds in this mystery of Christ. They also have these parallels with, uh, uh, with nature and creation as well. So uh, the, the spring equinox around uh, March 25th, the uh, uh, summer solstice, which is the longest day of the year. John the Baptist is born, and uh, one of John's famous lines is... I must decrease, and he must increase. Right, so John comes into the world at the summer solstice, and the days start to get shorter until we get to the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, when the light of the world comes uh, is born, and the days start to grow longer until we get back to that uh, spring equinox. we are fin- blowing my mind here. This well, is finally, fantastic. Finally, finally. When uh, the day finally overtakes the night, the light finally conquers the darkness, and the days start to grow.
2: And one of the feasts in the Roman Empire, right around the time of Christ, was called the Feast of the Unconquered Sun. Because they had some sense that the shortest day of the year, it always looked like the sun was going to go out and die. And then all of a sudden, it came back to life and started, you know, the day started getting longer. So the Christians said, wow, you know, God provided this feast that the entire Roman Empire understands as the principal feast of their entire year, suddenly becomes the day to put the birth of Christ. Not so much to replace the Roman feast, although it might have that secondary effect, but because theologically it makes sense. The light of the world is born into the darkness, and then the light increases as the days go by.
0: And Chris, didn't you say at the, this past uh, Treasures of the Triduum conference that we had that next year, the Feast of the Annunciation, and was it Holy Saturday or Easter Sunday or the same, same day? well I don't know This like one day it was one day off yeah well this past
1: year the uh, March 25th was a Friday and so there's some beautiful uh, you know just how it lines up the significance of March 25th and uh, the sacrifice of the Lamb you know Cardinal Ratzinger will make this observation in his book The Spirit of the Liturgy that um, the the stars are telling us something about what's going on as well so not just the earth and the sun but the stars too so if you were uh, if you were born around March 25th you're your cosmological your zodiac sign would be the the aries the ram and so on this day which is also if you if you look at the layer of uh of meaning that would come to us from the chosen people this was also considered to be the day that abraham took isaac up mount moriah to sacrifice him but at the last his hand is stayed and isaac is replaced with the the ram ram who's caught Mm -hmm. in the bush well Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger is saying, listen, even the stars are twinkling out, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God. So this March 25th is all drawing our attention, You know, if we have the sacramental eyes to see it, to this sacrifice of the Lamb. There's a church in Chicago, St. Clement's, one of the most beautiful churches in the city, and up in the top of the
2: dome, it has this blue ring with the 12 signs of the zodiac. And sometimes people say, well, "You know, that sounds like an astrological prediction. But it's not that. It's because you had 12 tribes of Israel. You had 12 apostles. And you also had 12 signs of the zodiac. So you have the Jewish tradition, the Christian fulfillment. And then you have those outside of the Jewish tradition who see these 12 uh, kinds of people. And then they uh, are arranged, the stars are arranged, so that the wise men could follow them and bring all of this uh, creation
1: uh, together. And these, these are great uh, things to remember because sometimes we, we get the sense that the liturgical calendar is really a man-made, artificial sort of creation. And, you know, I think maybe sometimes we haven't done, us, done ourselves any favors when, you know, a common question that we get in the office is, well, is Saturday, August 15th, the Holy Day of Obligation this year? Well, no, the Holy Days don't, you know, if it's a Saturday or Monday, you know, it doesn't count or these things move around. So it can give it, the calendar, kind of an artificial sort of man-made feel. But this is not the case, that the calendar we follow is deeply rooted in the cosmos, in nature, in culture, in the Old Covenant um, that it has deep roots, and when you start to uncover those roots, then it starts to make a lot more sense.
2: And the goal for all of this, like everything else, is transformation of humanity into Christ and the glorification of God. You know, the calendar is such a rediscovery in the mid-20th century, and Vatican II so insistent on it precisely because these are the mysteries of Christ that are unfolding over time so that we can get to know them, absorb them, bring them into our minds and hearts. In fact, the Pope who proclaimed the, the new feast of Christ the King uh, wrote a, a document about Christ the King. And he said, nobody reads papal documents. The only way to get people to know this is to have a feast in the calendar so people may experience it in their minds, their bodies, their hearts, in their churches, singing those hymns. So it's funny to see a papal document, a pope, saying, I'm writing a document which no one will read. But the way to get this mystery of Christ into the life of He didn't the have Twitter, so I guess... To, I... <laughs> to celebrate it liturgically. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, I, I, I liked it because when we first started this conversation... Um, I honestly was thinking that that this was like a man-made thing, just to make all of this church history more tangible for us in a way that's you know related to how we go about our daily lives. You know, we all use a calendar. When am when are we going to meet next time? Oh, Wednesday. You know, all that type of stuff. But what is what is becoming you know um, you know what what I'm beginning to understand is just like you know holy images and signs and symbols. These are things that are continually revealed to us, which I think is a common misconception with a lot of things in the Catholic Church is that, you know, a lot of people think that there's a bunch of people huddled together making decisions and say, okay, this is what we're going to do from now on, when in actuality, I think a lot of this is just information that's continually revealed to us. Which is, which is not what people would think initially.
2: Well, that's how the Church works as the continuing uh, operation of Christ in, in glorifying the world. Christ's power is given to the Church to govern and regulate, and then the people who are people have to come together and say, how do we best do this? So we can't just make it up. Let's look at the biblical precedent. Let's look at the patterns of creation. Let's look at the ways that this would be most effective to the people in this time and place. So it's always this combination of the power and the authority that God gives through Christ and then how humans operate and uh, actualize
1: that power in the lives of people. What more can be said?
2: <laughs> Actually, a whole lot can be said.
1: If you want, we can we can uh, we can dig a little bit deeper into the liturgical calendar. Though you know, we talked about the, the or I talked about this the stars and the sun. Uh, a moon is a, is probably uh, one of the the key elements as well to uh, uh, to understanding the uh, the liturgical calendar, because in, in the in the in the System of Jewish feasts, they were running on. Uh, they were using at this at the time of Christ a lunar calendar, and uh, the the beginning of the month, uh, the spring month was called uh, Nissan. Dennis, I think, and the beginning of the month of every month, this lunar month would be with a new moon, which. We'd say no moon. You'd look up on the first day of the month and you wouldn't see any moon. In the the middle of the month, the moon would be full. And this would be uh, the 14th day of the month of Nisan. And so this is how uh, the chosen people would uh, determine the date of Passover. And this has everything to do with the Paschal work of Christ. So when the moon was full, this is when Passover, which marked that very first uh, uh, exodus, Out of uh, slavery in Egypt and into uh, into some relative freedom into the desert. Uh, Actually, it was Passover again, I believe, when they entered the promised land with Joshua at their head. Um, But what Jesus would see is uh, in the garden. If you if you recall, ever uh, ever seeing that uh, the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. You know, Jesus in the garden and he looks. It's a full moon. And even the moon has significance, because these elements of creation, which come from God himself, uh, signify certain things. Um, And so the moon uh, traditionally is interpreted as something that's passing, right? The sun doesn't uh, uh, increase or decrease in brightness, but the moon does. And this passing element is very appropriate for what Jesus is doing, because Pascha means to pass, Uh, It's also uh, full because, uh, from our perspective, it's farthest away from the sun. And the moon is seen as something that is uh, oftentimes evil, right? So if you ask uh, police officers or teachers or parents, I mean, what happens when the moon is full? Werewolves,
0: obviously. That's
1: right. Werewolves, as you read in the... No. Uh, But uh, the term uh, lunatic... It okay, comes from Luna, meaning moon. And so I've heard police officers say or teachers say you know, that the kids just get a little bit squirrely at the full moon. The crime seems to spike at the—I uh, don't know if there's hard evidence for this. But, you know, the moon signifies this, uh, this sickness that Jesus is about—the sun, the true son, is about to conquer. And so this natural level became incorporated into the calendar of the chosen people, which marked their own uh, Passover uh, which Jesus was uh, uh, incorporating and uh, completing definitively in His own saving work.
2: Right and then, there in the actual seasons themselves of the year, there's preparation for the coming of Christmas. There's ad, uh, Advent. There's Lent, and so you have these very important kind of signposts in the life of the church. And it's not just oh, it's this surprise to us. So tomorrow's Easter. No, there's a long time of preparation, uh, and even things like fasting and and uh, giving up things for Lent, which you talk about, It's not for its own sake but to prepare the mind and the body and heart for the coming of Christ so there's this kind of human aspect get our attention don't do this for a while why? oh because Easter's coming Easter's coming Christmas is coming and you have these high points and then there are secondary feasts and tertiary feasts um, just like your own you know, life in your own house, there might be certain birthdays that you remember,
0: or you're preparing for something like a wedding, or you know things like that.
2: Right, and a wedding is a good example where festivity is still with us very much. So you think about all the money spent for one day, this crazy dress that a wed- that a bride wears for a couple of hours. Hopefully, it's not too crazy. Well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars for an eight-hour piece of attire—it's kind oh. of amazing. But that this expenditure, or sort of wasteful expenditure, is the way that we indicate something really important. Is happening, and that happens in the liturgical seasons too. The high points will have more elaborate music, more elaborate readings, more elaborate use of um, incense, for instance, more candles, and so that you know this day is really important. So the liturgical seasons are then externalized in the things that point to their importance. So what about
0: um, what about the ordinary time? Things that are just ordinary. Uh, how how does the church perceive that? I mean, it's it's really it's really nice to have the times where we're actually, I guess. You know, I'm going to speak, um, you know, bluntly. Like, okay, we're we're doing more things. We're being more active during, you know, Advent and Lent. There's more to think about and more to, you know, live out our daily lives. There's more um, that that's leading us on a daily basis. But then, then we have ordinary time, which is kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, like boring. You know, it's just regular. (laughs) But it doesn't
2: mean ordinary, like ho hum. Right,
0: right. So what is through the year? What is ordinary time in relation to the liturgical calendar?
1: Yeah, well, as you know, the answer to everything is Jesus, and the reason that these two pivotal points on the calendar, March twenty fifth ish and December twenty fifth ish, are so important to us is because those are the the central dates in uh, in the life of Christ, and everything leads up or leads to and leads from those two points. So the preceding Advent and Lent and the and the following Christmas season and uh, Easter season. But you're right. There's these other uh, weeks in the calendar throughout the year called ordinary time and most people say it's not meant to be uh, just plain old boring uh, uh, average time but uh ordinal from like a, from number numbered sundays first second third fourth all the way up to 33 or 34 weeks right. people say ordinary. pair on them or through the year the numbered weeks of the year yeah good at the Thanks, uh, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> better said than i did <laughs> Uh, and what the the documents will say is what these weeks of ordinary time are meant to do is to unfold the entire mystery of Christ throughout the rest of the year. So these two principal seasons of uh, of uh, Easter and Christmas highlight the most important parts in the uh, in the life of Christ. But the rest of the year, they're just focus- extra days. <laughs> they 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 focus on those other uh, uh, very important parts of Christ. And it also
2: gives you a break. I mean, if you had Thanksgiving. Dinner every day of the year. You just couldn't. That would ma- be great. <laughs> that sounds awesome for me. You couldn't maintain that level of eating. <laughs> now, and perpetual Lent.
0: That would not be.
2: But also, would be you good. would not appreciate Thanksgiving as much if you had that every day. So you have kind of a, a low day. Um, you have your grilled cheese sandwich and tomato soup, and then the next day is Thanksgiving, and you have this feast. So feasts are distinguished from irregular activities. So just at the human level, uh, that works. But then the saints' days fit into the liturgical cycle as well, because their people are particularly held up for uh, emulation, who Christ acted particularly well in, and they become lessons for us to uh, how to live ourselves.
1: Excellent. Well,
0: uh, I think that's all we have on uh, liturgical year, right? How about, uh, Chris, what do you think we should do now?
1: I think we should answer a tough liturgical question. (laughs) All right.
2: Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: Okay, it is time for a question for the liturgy, guys. We have a good one this week. This one comes from Anonymous, and Anonymous says, Why do some churches ring bells while others don't? I think this person is uh, probably referring to the bells during the consecration, but if you
1: want to elaborate. Yeah, well, why don't we start there? Uh, Maybe the the first... We'll answer the question with a question. What happens when you hear bells? On a fire truck, in a school building? You're alarmed. Exactly. You look. Yeah, you, you raise your attention, you look around, you start to see what's happening here. You can see that maybe... well. I don't know if your daughter Agnes realized this yet or not, but my kids, too, they'll be goofing around during Mass. But then the bells will ring at uh, the Sanctus or the Epiclesis, and they'll stop and they'll look and they'll... They'll at least draw their attention to what's happening at the Mass. And so I think maybe just on a human level, what bells do humanly, they do liturgically, namely.
2: I, I remember the ice cream man ringing the bell every oh, summer. Yeah. And that was it. Mom, can we have yeah. ice cream? Just yeah. we,
0: we, called the, we called him the ding-ding man.
2: The ding-ding man. <laughs> <laughs> A friend ding, of mine ding, ding, said his mother told him that uh, if the ice cream man was ringing the bells, that meant he was out of ice cream. So every time he came <laughs> by, <laughs> he <they> couldn't <laughs> get ice cream.
1: That That's is so good. cruel. Yeah. So I think maybe that's the first answer is the bells are rung so that they can uh, remind us to draw our attention just in case we may have been daydreaming or something during the mass to to, to be attentive to this very important part. And maybe another reason, too, is, uh, you know, on, uh, on on Holy Thursday, bells can be rung during the singing of the Gloria. Maybe this, I don't know if this is a, a practice uh, in, uh, in your parishes, but uh, bells can be rung during the sing of the Gloria at the Mass of the Lord's Supper, and then they're silent Until they're rung again at the Gloria uh, at the Easter Vigil And so in this time, they would, send, uh, they would show um, importance, but also kind of a, a celebration
2: you know, a- Well, does the church permit ringing bells at say, the consecration?
1: Yes does the church, oh, on does the Holy tri- Thursday? Or? No, just in general, at Mass. No, 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 what, what about
0: requiring? So what's the difference between permit and, and requiring for the
1: bells? Yeah, well, at least with the Epiclesis, this is where the, the priest's hands are extended over the gifts. Uh, the rubric is, bells may be rung at this time. Now, at the elevations? Well, the, in the
2: older form of the Mass, you would often see it in both places. Or sometimes mm-hmm. you see very traditional parishes ring it again at the major elevation. Yeah. But the question is, is it certainly not required. But is it forbidden, I guess, is...
1: Oh, no, I wouldn't say it's forbidden. I think it's a longstanding tradition. And, you know, we've heard the expression a hermeneutic um, of, uh, what, what is it, Dennis? I always, I always get this word. Hermeneutic reform. reform. That, you know, the, the rites that we have now didn't, you know, drop out of the sky in 1963 or 64. I mean, they, they, they grew out of a centuries-long practice. And one of, the, uh, one of those parts that seemed to be a part of, uh, of the tradition is, is the ringing of bells at the, uh, at the elevations.
2: You know, there's a whole theology of bell ringing as well. It's very uh, well developed in certain places, especially in, in Russia, in the Russian Orthodox Church. And if you've ever seen a church bell, it often will have a prayer written around the bottom. It might be the Hail Mary, then the bells have names, One is Joseph or Patrick or Virgin Mary. And the, the logic is that each bell has a pitch, and when these pitches are rung together, they have harmonic relationships, and it's kind of like singing in harmony. And those bells are rung, and the sound waves that the bells make will then extend across the city or across the countryside. And uh, the theology is that the prayer is carried on that sound wave. So somebody a thousand miles, well, not a thousand miles, a thousand feet away (laughs) might hear those bells ringing. Is that
0: similar to incense? You know, the prayer and the.
1: Yeah, the voice of the church building is often is what the bells are called. Well, there's this very famous picture that uh, even if you can't put it in your mind now, called the the,
0: the farmer and the yeah. It's yeah. called
1: it's called I think it's called the Angelus, where the the farmer and his wife are out in the field, and you see the church off in the distance in the background, and they've 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 heard the bells from the church, and they're pausing in their work to uh, pray the Angelus.
2: Fascinating. Bells also would uh, in the in the ancient tradition would signify somebody important coming so if you've ever been to a basilica a church that has the honorary title of basilica it has a little bell called a tintinobulum and that's because when the pope went through the streets of rome they would have an umbrella over him to keep the sun off him and they'd ring this little bell that way everybody knew the pope was coming and then they would do the same thing if they were bringing the blessed sacrament through the streets in a procession so that meant that the king was there and so if you ring the bells during the eucharistic prayer you say well suddenly the, you know the king is present here And so, even if it's not absolutely required, it's a a venerable uh, tradition that indicates something uh, spiritually. Be there with bells on.
0: I do not know what that means. Um, That's what Dennis is saying. It
2: means be festive and delight in the enjoyment of what you're doing.
0: Hmm. Maybe I need to be older, I guess. I don't know. Uh, All right. In time. (laughs) All right. That is our question of the week. If you would like to submit your own question for the liturgy, guys. You can email us at questions at liturgyguise.com. Thanks again, and God
2: bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.